That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. It's great to be with you guys again. On this episode, I have Dr. Katie Blake on the podcast. Now, Dr. Katie is a professor, a researcher, also a master level yoga instructor. And she came on to talk about how evangelical spaces can co-opt our identities and provide breeding grounds for abusive authority. Um, it's, it's a very interesting episode. We kind of try and dig into some of the psychological background and, and um, be and uh, foundations that can lead to abuse uh, in the church and to people being gaslighted. So this is a good one. I really enjoyed Dr. Katie coming on and sharing her expertise. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. That being said, of course, I want to say thank you to everyone who continues to share the podcast. We are continuing to grow. It truly means so much. If you could do me a favor and and give us a rating and a review um, or a like and subscribe, depending on if you're watching this on YouTube or on podcasts, that would be so helpful. I can't express how much the ratings help us. So if you could do that, thank you so much. If you want to support the show, you can check out... um, our donation link in the show notes. It helps us cover our costs, covers Zoom subscriptions and everything else. And that would mean so much to me as well. Um, we do have, I'm just going to put this out there. We do have some news coming for new evangelicals. Uh, so stay tuned for that. You can check out the teaser on our Instagram story as of the release of this podcast, which is Monday. Um, I guess it's going to be July first, third. <laughs> I had to do some math in my head from when I'm recording this. So uh, yeah, check it out. See what you guys think. And changes are coming. The next step of New Evangelicals is coming. I'm excited to share more information with you all over time. All right. Without further ado, check out this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all next time. Katie, thank you for coming on the uh, New Evangelicals podcast. I think we actually, someone recommended uh, you uh, via a DM. So whoever that person is, shout out to them. Um, and welcome on. Thanks for making time. Yeah. Thanks to that person. And thanks <laughs> to you. I'm excited to make this new connection with you. And yeah. I've been doing a little, just like back research back, you know, kind of just oh checking boy. out who you are and I'm just, <laughs> I'm excited to get to know you. So thanks. It's really a treat. Absolutely. Why don't you just kind of give us some of your background? You know, I mean, did you grow up in the evangelical space? Um, what do you do now? Kind of give us that, that, that big picture overview. Yeah, I grew up in the church, born Mm. and raised, um, definitely had a conservative upbringing as far as church goes. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up in the church of Christ. Mm. So for all of you church of Christers out there, you know, there's like a collective pearl clutching, a gasp. (laughs) Um, so it's a pretty conservative, like women don't do much. Um, that kind of thing. Um, no instruments. Okay. Um, so yeah, I went to a large state school and that was really refreshing because I had the opportunity to know more people who didn't go to the church of Christ than people who did, or really more people who didn't even go to the Christian church than people who did. And so it was a really interesting opportunity and a great opportunity for me to start kind of my, what I would say is my informal deconstruction process, just like asking questions and meeting new people from different backgrounds that normally I would have thought were 
um, unsafe or whatever, right? So what, these- I, what I hear you saying is that the liberal college, it, it, they ruined you. <laughs> well, as I was um, setting it up that way, I was like, yep, that's what some people are going to hear, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, it, it's so interesting, just a little side story. So sure. most of the kids from my church growing up went to Christian schools, specifically Church of Christ schools. Okay. And so I decided to go to this large state school because it's an excellent school. Mm. And another kid's mom actually said to my mom, like, you know, that's a party school, right? (laughs) And all she's going to do there is like party. And what's funny is, I mean, I I had a little bit of that, but I'm really just a big nerd. So I just like studied, you know, and just enjoyed learning. Yeah. Um, So yeah, there was definitely some of that stereotype and I'm um, just affirming that stereotype now, (laughs) but yeah. So, um, I eventually met my now husband Mm. and he at the time was a church of Christ minister. Wow. Yeah. So we got married and I found myself back in the church of Christ and at a different stage in my life where I was asking different questions, but yeah, through all of that, I, um, earned my doctorate in social psychology. And, um, so now today I, teach psychology courses at the collegiate level, kind of on the side. And I've wow. been doing that for almost 15 years now, since Sheesh. 2007. Yeah. Just teaching all kinds of um, college level classes, cultural psych, intro to psych. But um, one thing that I'm doing now that's really become my main focus that I'm so passionate and excited about is helping women walk through deconstruction because I've had my own personal story of that. And then I have all of this background in psychology to help inform that process. And I'm also a 500 hour master's level yoga instructor. And so there's a lot of stuff that comes along with that. Um, to help people just learn how to breathe for stress and anxiety and how to tap into embodiment, which is something that we aren't taught a lot of times in um, fundamental evangelicalism. (laughs) And yeah, so it's really a great fusion of just my personal story and my education and um, it's a blast. Wow. I got to say, I was not ready for the yoga master, uh, you know, just um, bomb drop there, <laughs> uh, which is cool. I mean, again, that's just, isn't that just like another, you know, um, stereotype, right? Like they're going to get into yoga and worldly things and new age spirituality. And here you are, you know, and you survived. What w- Would you still identify in some way as like a Christ follower or have you kind of walked away as a whole at this point? Yeah. I mean... I think I'm still asking myself questions mm. about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I love the person of Jesus. Yeah. And so I think I've heard you say too, that you're uh, still a Jesus follower. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think that I would say I'm a Jesus follower and, yeah, you know, I'm a Jesus follower yeah. and yeah. Um, because something that I've learned through going to a large state school and meeting mm. people and, and listening to other people's stories and, becoming a yoga instructor and learning about this other tradition and this other culture is that there is a lot of wisdom in most of the streams. Right. Yeah. Um, and we can glean from that. And so definitely, um, a Jesus follower and other things. So yeah, yeah. you know, I think labels are hard for me. Mm -hmm. I have always, 
struggled with choosing a label because when I say Jesus, you think one thing. When I say Uh Christian, you think one thing. And I mean something else. When we say the word God, we're likely talking about different things. But something that we know about human psychology is that we often think other people are much more similar to us than they actually in fact are. So to use those words like God, Jesus, Christian, I get a little uncomfortable because I feel like I need a couple of hours (laughs) Yeah. just to like flush out what that means for me. So Yes. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And that is why I tend not to use the word Christian. Um, or, you know, I tend to call people on my account or myself, Jesus people, you know, just yeah. trying to find like different language to just to frame what we're trying to say in like a way that doesn't attach ourselves to the uh, stereotypical evangelical. I mean, the term new evangelicals is, is I have, I have a reason for, but that that's really about as, you know, stereotypical as I get, (laughs) but I'm with you on that. So, um, man, I love this because you're, you have a PhD in social psychology, right? Is what you said, which is amazing. You identify as some Jesus something and, which is also very cool. And you help women through deconstruction, which is, Awesome, because my account is 70% women. Wow. So out of... That shocks me. You know what? It's interesting. At first, it really shocked me. As the Delta grew and as I talked to other social media accounts that were similar to my vein or even other pastors, they have also found that that they are women-majority audiences. Wow. I, I have an uneducated, non-scientific theory. And that is, is I'm wondering if so many women have felt so silenced and so oppressed for so long that they have found safe spaces online for maybe the Mm -hmm. first time in the topic of religion or Christianity. And because they have these spaces, they're just flocking to them. That's my uneducated, unscientific, you know, non-peer-reviewed guess. But I I think that there is something to that a little bit, you know, because I think that a lot of women have had very... um, misogynist, (laughs) misogynistic, you know, um, church experiences. And they finally feel like maybe for the first time they could be open about their thoughts without a man coming on and being like, no, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) So that's my guess. But I say all that because I'm glad that, that you kind of specialize in that. So, I mean, where I'm trying to think of like almost where to start. Why don't you kind of break down social, uh, psychology for us? Like what is that study compared to in my mind, psychology is a study of like the human mind, but like what, what are some of those differences? Perfect question, because this is how I love to explain it. And I feel like sometimes people's eyes glaze over, but I feel like the way you set me up, um, it's going to be helpful. So Psychology is like the study of individual thought, behavior, emotion, sociology. If I'm a sociologist, I might study a particular person group. So I might move to like Cuba or um, the Seychelles or something and study a particular group of people. Mm. So social psychology bridges the gap between those two. And it's how other people influence individual thought, behavior, emotion. Okay. So how other people influence perhaps your own behavior or your, or your emotion, I guess also like part of forming your inner you, right? Like that's that yeah. a huge, okay. So that's a great springboard because obviously you see my account and my account deals a lot with, tra- with trauma and a lot with people who have been harmed by people in leadership in the church who have claimed to speak on behalf of God, which is obviously, I, I, I want to hear you unpack this. Obviously when someone says that, 
you know, it makes you have an immediate sense of, re- you know, reverence and respect. Like, ooh, they have a, a, some kind of pipeline to this divine being that they're claiming is all-powerful. Therefore, they must be maybe not all-powerful, but let's say very powerful, more so than me. Therefore, I should trust them. So, I mean, how, how have you seen this in your studies? How have you seen that kind of church leadership impacting people in the evangelical church? Yeah, I think that many pastors and ministers do recognize the power and authority that they hold. Hmm. Um, but I think that's something that, um, you know, uh, you work in a church, right? But you uh, play in a band, right? I, I was a, uh, I've always been a full-time volunteer in churches my whole life. And recently oh, okay. I, I, uh, I, I was asked to step down over my social media presence. So, but I was, I mean, besides getting a paycheck, you know, it's like, I was pretty involved. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, so I was married to a man who was a minister and he left to start a small business. Okay. So, um, grateful that we don't have a similar story to you where we were asked to leave for some reason. Um, but that story is so common mm-hmm. and just yeah. want to affirm the hardship and pain in that for sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, but I think that it's important for us to continually be reminding people in positions of power and authority, like being in a ministerial position or even a staff position or a volunteer position. I mean, that's something else that we don't think about, like people serving in youth or people serving even in the band. Um, There is still this authority structure, this hierarchy that's created in our psyche and in our minds where we look to people like you as positions of authority, as people who can, like you said, have the ultimate you know, answer for things. And um, we hold those things in higher regard when they're coming from people in those positions of authority. And there's so much research on that. And that's all social psychology. And I love to geek out on that for sure. Well, let's geek out on that. Give me some of like the nuts and bolts of what is happening in someone's psyche when they're at maybe a church and they see a leader and and this whole God, you know, uh, thing is thrown into the leadership thing as well, right? Like, like for example, what I'm saying is it's not like uh, my boss at work who, yeah, he's my boss. You know, I get paid to be, to, to work for him. There's like this other element. There's like this spiritual God element that affects humans in a whole different way. So geek out for a minute, go ahead. Like give, give me some of like the nuts and bolts of, of what that does to someone's psyche. Yeah. So um, one thing that it makes me think of is that social influence is much stronger when there is something that's not objectively true happening. Right. So let me kind of unpack that and explain what I mean. Okay. So if there's like a fact, um, I mean, even with facts. Okay. So I've got an object lesson for anyone on YouTube. So I've got two pencils here. One is clearly longer than the other one. Right. Yep clearly longer. Okay. We might see that as an objective fact, but even with this, there's research studies. Um, there's a guy named Solomon Ash who started studying this in the fifties. All right. If you sit around a table and 10 people say, Oh, these pencils are the same length. When it gets to your turn, you're going to look around and be like, all these people are cray, but there ain't no way I'm going to say these pencils are not the same length Ah. because everybody, so something even as factual and simple as this. Yeah there is that power of influence. Hmm. And in psychology, we call that conformity. So it's just this desire to want to conform to the social norms at hand in whatever situation you're in. But when people are in positions of authority and there's not an objective truth, 
like these pencils are not the same length. Right. When there's a little bit of lack of clarity. So when we're talking about like faith and we're talking about issues of religion and right. the Bible and stuff yeah. where it's like nobody really knows this factually. Right. Right. There's some um, need for that faith. It's a little bit subjective. Then the power of authority, the power of social influence turns up. Right. Well, okay. Let's pause for a second. Because as you're talking, I'm thinking about um, like these uh, worship nights, right? Like these mo- moments of the Holy Spirit where maybe like you don't feel anything, but people are doing things. So you kind of feel like you have to do things to make yeah. that feeling happen. Is that kind of the idea with like your pencil illustration that we're talking about applied in like a religious sense, potentially? Potentially. Absolutely. Okay. And so now you're saying on top of that, you know, in, in your analogy, there is an objective truth. Like like you can measure why one's longer than the other and you can kind of prove why maybe you're right and the whole group is wrong. But in real, a religious sense, even though the language is very objective, the reality is like it is a very subjective interpretation, right? Presented as objectivity with God on top of that. So it's a very right. hard... Um, I don't know, like glass ceiling to break through. Am I, am I tracking with you so far? Yeah, absolutely. And so in those situations where you can't be like, look, guys, y'all are all dumb. Right, right. <laughs> These are not the same length. Yeah. Then we tend to go, oh, well, that person is a pastor <laughs> and they do have a direct line to right. God, right? Yeah. So even though what they're saying doesn't really sit with me right? and I have this, you know, a word, or a phrase that we use often in psychology is cognitive dissonance, yeah. right? This like, um, you know, discrepancy that's happening between what I'm feeling and what I'm doing or what I'm feeling and what maybe someone else is saying or different thoughts that I have. Then it's like, well, I guess I'm just supposed to follow the authority because they're the ones that know. Right. And it's absolutely human nature hmm. for us to fall prey to that. Interesting. Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to process like, cause I, here's the thing I'm thinking about. A lot of people would try to explain that in like spiritual terms in the church, right? Like, Oh, like maybe you're not, you're not hearing God or maybe you haven't studied the Bible enough. But what you're saying is on a psychological, like science level, this is what's happening, right? There's this term we have dissonance and, and this is part of that equation. Is that correct so far? Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Well, why do you say potentially though? Like, what are, are you just, like, break that down. Yeah. I mean, there are so many different variables that go into any social situation. Okay. And so what's great about science is that we can pinpoint one specific thing mm. and we can use like experiments and we can use like um, statistical methods that are really robust and really, um, uh, you know, complicated, but we can't perfectly um, reenact any situation. Yes. And so it's very hard to say like, this variable is absolutely what is causing that thing. So I'm getting a little statistical on you. I'm trying not to use too many like- No, that's that's okay. Um, But yeah, so that's why I just say potentially because I think any scientist who is working in social sciences has to kind of say like, well, we see this trend, but just to be- um, fully, you know, disclosure that. Well, uh, I, I appreciate that because we live in a very polarized society of like, no, this is definitely it. Right. And we, I try and say on my account that we don't, we don't want to become fundamentalists all over again. 
right? Yeah. We, we don't want to move from one sense of like, uh, you know, absolute certainty to a different sense of the same thing, just with different language. So I appreciate that yeah. you're saying like, yes, you know, there we see trends, but I'm not going right. to sit here and be like, without a shadow of a doubt, that's what happens. But I, I would imagine the people who are listening are like putting two and two together and probably saying, oh, like that that is probably what has happened to me, um, you know, growing up in church. I mean, I've, I've, that, that has happened to me, at least I, I can say that. So you mentioned that like you really focus on helping women. Why, why the focus on helping women through this process, maybe compared to like helping men and women? Why the focus on women? Yeah, it's a couple of things. Mm. So Number one, I have listened to a lot of women describe their own deconstruction experiences, and I find that the issues are different for men and women. Definitely. So women, for example, we have something called relational identity, which means that we're more likely to see ourselves in terms of our relationships. So if I were to ask you, hey, Tim, like list five things that are who you are, you might be like, I'm a drummer. You know, I am outgoing. I am a podcaster where women might be like, I am a mom. I am a sister. I am a friend. Right. Um, Another thing is that our self-esteem is a lot more contingent upon our relationships than men. Again, trends. Right. right? Just speaking in in generalities. Right. Because that's really all psych research is. So anyone who is is studying research, just know that it's just trends. It's not absolutes. It's not an end all be all. I like to sprinkle everything with a little bit of uncertainty. Right. Always. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Like a good deconstructionist. (laughs) Right. That's right. And a good social scientist. Yes. Um, Yes. Yeah, so our self-esteem is more likely to be contingent upon those relationships. So when we're going through deconstruction and you're experiencing that ostracizing or they're asking you to leave your volunteer position or whatever, that not only affects my relationship with that culture or that group or those individual people, but that seeps into my self-esteem as a woman. So now I also feel poorly about myself because of those things. And that's not that that can't happen to men. It's just that women are more likely to have have that relationship contingent self-esteem is what we call it. Hmm. And then another thing for me is exactly what you started this whole conversation with. I just firmly believe that women have been silenced and belittled for far too long. Hmm. And my main passion is to just show up in the world and empower women to remind them that, you know, they do have wisdom. Like if we want to talk some of the Bible, you know, like a lot of the references to women are feminine words. Yeah. Um, they're feminine characters in the Bible. That's something I was never taught. Yeah. And so I want to give women their power back. Yeah. I mean, even the Bible talks about the concept of like lady wisdom, you know, how wisdom yes. comes in the form of a lady. Um, and I think that's amazing. And it has been very um, covered up by typical... Covered patriarchal evangelical church culture. So so in your talking with women, I mean, what are some of the generalities or the trends that you've seen as far as like, I, I call these like an ingredient list. Like these are certain ingredients that kind of contributed to me deconstructing. What are some of the big ingredients that, that, that you've seen with women, maybe on like a psychological level or something like that? Yeah, two big things for me, and it's identity and relationships and boundaries specifically. Hmm. Um, so... Yeah. um, One of the things I love to talk about is identity and this idea that I see in women 
that we typically were not given the opportunity to fully develop our own identity. So Eric Erickson is a psychologist who talked a lot about identity. If you took an intro to psych class ever, you probably learned about his theory of psychosocial development. And there's like these eight different stages, but he really felt like identity was the most important stage to human development. And um, that typically happens in adolescence. And I find for myself, my own story, and when I listen to other women in adolescence, we weren't really given the opportunity to figure out who we are, to try on different personalities or different um, characters or different friend groups. It was like, here is the thing we do. Like, this is the uniform. So go put it on. I mean, even literally when we're talking about clothes, this is what we wear. This is what we do around here. So just get in line. Mm. And so what happens is then you have women later on in adulthood for some reason um, at whatever maybe stage of their life, you know, um, in my work, I'm working with women from college stage all the way to retired. And they hit this wall at some point where they look around and they're like, none of this is mine. Mm. Like none of this is mine. And they were never given the opportunity to engage in that creative, fun, exciting process of figuring out who they are. And they wake up one day and don't even recognize themselves. And so it's this whole process of helping them walk back through developing their own identity. Hmm. How does, how does, what's the psychology of like how church leadership shapes, especially in adolescence identity? Like what's going on there? Um, yeah. That, that, that's all I got for that one. <laughs> yeah. What's so interesting about Erickson's theory is that it's um, like a step theory. And if I'm getting too nerdy yeah. on you, just be like, slow down. No, no. Like, slow down. Go ahead. Um, so there's this stage of developing identity. And then immediately after that is this stage of developing intimacy in relationships. And so he argues that to um, have healthy relationships, you have to really have this healthy identity that's developed. Otherwise, you could experience problems in your relationships. And I feel like um, what I observe is that women who are not given the opportunity to fully step into their authenticity and be their own person, then we're very heavily influenced by other people as we step into developing relationships in young adulthood. It's like the stereotypical two on the Enneagram. Well, what's better for you? Oh, okay. Well, I'll just do that, right? (laughs) That's my wife. (laughs) Yeah, the Proverbs 31 woman, Uh like what's best for everybody else, you know? And there's definitely um, balance to that, right? So don't hear me saying all of that is bad. Right, right. Um, Yeah, it's just that there is this lack of identity, as he would call it, it's identity confusion. And so when we step into those relationships, then it becomes even more supercharged what we've already been talking about. Like if a if a minister says this is what we're supposed to do, if a parent says this is what we're supposed to do, if a friend says this is what you're supposed to believe, then we're more likely to be influenced by that conformity, that social influence um, when the identity is not strong and intact. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so it sounds almost like, to use an analogy off the top of my head, that they're building with like a a broken foundation. And so when you build this house and like, you know, you're at the top of it and it's done, then you realize, oh, oh no, you know, the foundation is wrong and you have to tear everything back down and kind of rebuild. And what's happening is you're saying that in the trends that, that you're seeing, 
women are being told this is your foundation. It's a one size fits all. Uh, there's no room for expression or for even, you know, trying on different personalities, whatever it is. And so women just psychologically as they're developing, right? That, that's what, that, that's what, uh, what they're told. They do that. They get married to a guy who has an expectation. And then potentially one day they just snap, really, right? Like, wait, this is not me. It, it, yeah. and, and they just kind of, you know, it, it could be deconstructing. It could be a lot of things. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, what we would call that in psychology is like the ideal self versus the real self. Mm. And so deep down in there, there's a real self, right? Um, but the ideal self oftentimes is constructed by what others say I should believe, what others say I should look like, or what others are wanting or expecting from me. And so a lot of times, I mean, I hear this like, it's like 99% of women that I talk to where they're living out this ideal self and not their real self, which can be really um, not gratifying um, once you wake up to that, right? Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking about this idea like the church doesn't value diversity, it values conformity, right? And so, so, but people are not conforming people like that's just not how how human beings are wired all the time obviously yes you want to get along and there's social dynamics of course we get that but like when you're kind of forced into that when you're when, when you're pigeonholed right at some point something's got to give and so that makes a lot of sense because honestly in in my dms and you know on topics that we talk about i get quite a few people who are women who grew up in the church or maybe are in their 30s now 40s and are like um, I don't know what to believe. Like I've had to rethink everything. Um, I, I'm thinking about one person in particular who I, I mean, she's way older than me. She's got to be like in her mid forties now, but um, I went to church with her, very conservative Baptist church kind of set up and like me. And I, I, I haven't talked to her in like however, however many years. And maybe two months ago, she messaged me on my account. Like, Hey, I can't believe you run this account. I've been deconstructing. I've rethought everything. Like I, you know, everything I grew up I, I, or everything I, I was told was just a lie. I was under someone's thumb. And it's just like, Whoa, like this moment of the, the real self is coming out over the, what was the term you used? The uh, ideal, ideal self. self. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So are you seeing this kind of as like a very widespread trend right now? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, for me, I was already walking down this path of deconstruction, but COVID absolutely pushed a lot of people into this (laughs) space as well, where we had the opportunity to really self-reflect. And um, it is just like on steroids right now, I think. And go ahead. Oh, I was going to, I was going to kind of, talk a little bit maybe about you personally, right? Because you grew up in this, I mean, I grew up in a pretty conservative church environment. It was hymns only, but we had, we at least had a piano. <laughs> okay. But you had no piano. So you were ultra, right? Conservative. Right. How did you work through maybe just some of like the, the guilt or the shame of like rethinking things and, and even the fear of like, oh, I was always taught this is the only way. And now I'm being exposed to this whole other world. How did you navigate some of that stuff? Yeah, I think that I've always been a little deconstructionist. Um, You know, I think back to even, um, and I've told this story before. So if you've listened to me on other podcasts, I apologize. Um, But back to when I was um, fifth or sixth grade, and I was in a Bible class, and um, the teacher said, okay, you know, everybody stand up. And um, if you've been baptized, go on ahead and sit down. 
you see where this is going, right? <laughs> and at that time I had not been baptized. So I'm one of the few still standing. Yeah. And he's like, all of y'all are going to hell. And I'm like 11, 12. Oh my like that, God. Right? And at that point I was like, okay, BS flag, you know, like right. 10 yards on the office. <laughs> I can see through this real quick. And so I think if I just think back over time, I've always been a little deconstructionist, just like peeking back behind the curtain, asking questions, maybe not doing that out loud. Absolutely. Um, I've only been doing that out loud for probably a few years now. Mm. And um, so I think really my understanding and education and training in psychology has really helped me because when we study social psychology and some of these trends, it can feel really like discouraging. Hmm. Um, oh my gosh, we're so heavily influenced by other people. Oh my gosh, we're really that superficial, right? Oh my goodness, we're really hmm. influenced by that, right? Yeah. But we have to understand that this is just human nature, right? Right. And when we can be aware of those things, then we can do something about them, right? And so it's really hard to hear some of the stuff that we're talking about, like our tendency to conform and our tendency to obey to authority, right? Um, but we have to recognize that that is nothing about you as a person. It has nothing to say about who you are. It is a general humanity trends. Right. And when we can be aware of those things, we can overcome those things. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, those traits can be very positive, right? They can be very good yeah. things. I mean, communities, healthy communities are, are beautiful. They're life-giving, they're affirming, and they celebrate diversity uh, through unity, you know, in a lot of ways. So it's kind of like the shadow of like what we're talking about, right? Like this is a very, all these concepts are good, are good human things that have helped humanity flourish that are, I think are God, are God designed. And, um, what we're seeing here is either an intentional or an unintentional abuse of just certain human traits that really can cause a lot of hurt without even knowing it. I mean, I grew up, my, my yeah. parents had no idea. My parents are good people. You know, they weren't intentionally right. trying to brainwash me. They thought that they were doing really well. And, and I, and I, I was a great kid in the church my whole life, you know, like I, and, and I had great friends and I had a very positive church experience overall. Yeah. Some of the theology was pretty crappy looking back. Right. So I, I, I do think that like, a lot of people who are deconstructing, who are like very, maybe publicly very like the church is problematic. I would say I agree. But when we talk, they also agree like, yeah, but it wasn't all bad, right? Like it wasn't all dis discouraging. Right. But like you said, I think between COVID and also between just the politics of, of the evangelical church right now and and also the very like um, um, language of, of objectivity and absolute truth, it, it's not matching with our reality. And so that's a huge disconnect. Like you said earlier, where it's like, they're saying the pencils are the same. And I'm saying, well, I can see that they're not. <laughs> right. And so what you're saying is not matching my reality. And the psychology of that, I it, it's hard to break that, honestly. Like, it's hard. So hard. I know this sounds crazy. I, I'm a little long here, so I'm sorry because this is your interview. But hear me out. No, go for it. So what I'm thinking about is, like, I had this thought the other day where I thought, it's crazy to me that I've been – 
I'm so conditioned to believe something that I can't objectively prove. And when something kind of happens that's objectively not that thing, I still choose the non-objective thing. Does that make sense? You know? 100%. <laughs> and I'm just like, why do I do that? <laughs> like, why? I mean, the, the evidence is right in front of me, but I'm still stuck on this. I mean, what, is there a term in psychology for this like thing I'm experiencing? Yeah. That happens because you're human, right? <laughs> okay. That happens to all of us. Yeah. yeah. So um, another term that we use in psychology is schemas. Okay. And so um, it's basically like little storylines that we have in our brains for everything that's happening, right? So yeah. I have a schema for what to expect when I'm at church. I have a schema for what to expect when I'm at work, assuming those two places are different, right? Yeah. Just as examples, I have a schema for um, what it's going to be like with my family, what it's going to be like with my husband's family as another example. Totally. So when you take in information that doesn't match one of those um, preset schemas, the brain's like, where do I put this? Right. Like, where do I put this? And if it can't assimilate or accommodate that information, then it'll just like throw it out. Cause it's like, well, this doesn't fit. <laughs> so I guess it's not true. Right. And yeah. so when yeah. you have, um, years and years and years of, uh, influence on your brain and what your brain sees as truth because your brain is not designed to be an objective truth seeker. Mm. Like it's designed to um, create stories and to create meaning, right? In, in what we see. Yeah. And um, so you're talking about trauma, right? Yeah. Which I am not very um, traditionally trained in. Right. So I don't want to talk too much about that. Um, but for example, you can have experiences where your brain is now saying this is truth about this situation, right? Mm. And um, then its job is to protect you in those situations. And so even though it's taking in information that possibly is telling a different story, its goal is to be a meaning maker and to keep you safe. Like those are the two things the brain does, um, make meaning and keep you safe. And so when you take in this new information and it doesn't fit, absolutely the tendency is to like, ah, just chunk that, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I, do you, do you know what strength finders is? I've heard of strength finders. I don't know a lot about it. So school me. Uh, well, I mean, essentially it's a test you take. It gives you like, like your top five strengths and it's actually, it's pretty good, pretty accurate. Anyway, I said that because one of mine is connectivity, which means that like, I just happen to be able to see connections with things all the time, almost to a fault where it's like, people are like, Tim, where are you going with this? I'm like, guys, hang with me. But so I'm going to say to you, Katie, hang with me for a second, but I'm thinking about how, you mentioned this idea of schema, and which is essentially the brain tells stories. And when your brain doesn't have shelf space for this new information, it goes, nah, just chuck it. <laughs> and then you also mentioned how the brain is wired not for necessarily objective um, truth necessarily, but it's wired for meaning and story. So two thoughts about that, and I would love, I would love your reaction on it. Number one, well, this is more of a question. The schema thing gives me more insight to how an entire group of people can believe that an election was stolen, even though we had the data that it wasn't, <laughs> you what? know, like, cause I've been trying to rack my brain around how evangelical Christians who can claim to objectively know the truth of God's word, AKA an ancient Eastern book. That's beautiful, but not written in English. 
and then also say, oh, but this data that proves that there was no widespread election fraud more than on any other election. It was a normal amount, which is to say negligible. Um, I reject that, and it was definitely stolen. Is that like the schema thing at work? Yeah, so we, too, um, in our social cognition and the way we think about the world and the way we think about uh, relationships and how we interact with others, um, we are looking for confirmation. That's called confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. You've probably heard this. It's been talked about a lot in mainstream media over the last year with the election and all of the things. Um, so again, the brain is a meaning maker. And so it wants to find things that support the stories that it's telling, right? So if it sees out or it, it notices something that's affirming the lie that it wants to believe, right. then it's going to take in that information and it's going to discard the information that is not supporting whatever it wants to believe, right? That yeah. confirmation bias idea. And something else too, I was just randomly reading about today is um, this idea that people um, want to grasp information that's like um, off limits. So whenever um, something is said to like, you know, I was thinking about like certain videos on YouTube that they were banning and yeah. certain information that they were banning on Facebook. Yeah, right? yeah. And then, you know, I had lots of friends that were like, yeah, but they're taking it down <laughs> yeah. because they don't want to know the truth. Right. And right. that's absolutely a social psychological phenomenon that's happening where it's like, well, what, I can't read that. Now you want to read it more right now. You want to grasp that information right. and take in that information even more because yeah. someone is telling you you can't. Right. Right. Yeah. No. When it comes to work, communication is key. Even if you don't have a writing job, sounding unconfident, indecisive, or passive-aggressive can hold you back professionally and hurt your team's productivity. Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions make sure you're always sending the right message. Sound clear and confident in your writing and automatically replace negative-leaning language with solution-focused alternatives. With Grammarly's help, you can build stronger relationships at work, be constructive in the face of challenges, and help your team get things done. Grammarly works where you do, so your team's projects get done before the deadline. And with features like comprehensive spelling, grammar, and clarity-focused sentence rewrites, Grammarly helps keep your writing efficient and mistake-free. The right tone can move any project forward. Get it just right with Grammarly. Go to grammarly.com slash podcast to sign up for free. Then get 20% off when you upgrade to premium. That's 20% off at Grimly.com slash podcast. This restaurant is the hottest ticket in town. An incredible 12-course meal made from fresh, locally sourced ingredients. And now for your ninth and final course. Uh, did they forget the last three? When you don't get what you pay for, you can feel a little forgotten. A recent lab study found most top CBD brands contain as little as 60% of what their labels claim. Upgrade your CBD to 100% with Nextevo Naturals. Go to nextevo.com slash upgrade 20. When it comes to clothes, it's great to have options. But having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must for everybody. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits into your life seamlessly with quality you have to feel to believe. And with an impressive selection of staples to choose from, there's something for everyone. So whether you're on the hunt for the perfect t-shirt, a solid pair of jeans, or super soft sweatshirts, American Giant has what you're looking for. Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. 
because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop where anywhere closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code WA23. That's that's correct. So I'm just and, and and honestly, I mean, listen, we all have confirmation bias, right? I mean, so I think that that's the hard part is we live in a culture that everyone's saying how objective they are, you know, and it's like, well, none of us are. But at the same time, we also can look at data and trends and see how, like, you know, historically racism is a thing, right? And then you have a different group of people who are like, no, 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 it's just individualized, like it's just a few bad actors. And so it's this weird almost paradox, right, of like, I really do believe that some of this stuff is objectively true, but also is that my own confirmation bias at work, but also I believe in, in, in morality, right? That like, no, enslaving people is a bad thing and we should not be doing that anymore. Uh, it's so it's just, it, it, it can be a real hodgepodge like in, in, in people's brains, right? On top of that, we have this like, instant ramen noodle culture of just information is like on demand through a tweet and it's then, and then it's gone the next day right like these big things happen yeah. and then the, within like a week it's like it never even happened people would just right. move along and it's like i mean i, I got to imagine that in your studies you you're probably studying how that effect affects people's psyches and the development can you speak to that at all by any chance yeah, it's so bad for our brains. Right. Um, one of the things that uh, I've been learning over the last year, especially when you're in like content creation, yes. um, like you are, is that our attention spans are basically like nil now um, over the last year, especially in COVID, um, where we've seen that people could typically hang for like seven to 10 minutes. And now it's like two to three. And I've Seriously. noticed this myself where um, just yesterday, uh, the college that I work for, they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, you got to take like 12,000 trainings <laughs> online. right?" And um, so I was taking these trainings. And uh, when the videos were six minutes or so, I was like, OK, cool, I got this. But when they were 20 minutes, I was like, ain't nobody got time for this. Right. And um, yeah. so that definitely is affecting us. Right. And it's affecting our ability, I think, to take in information in an objective way hmm. and to do that in a fact focused way um, because we are so wired now for, like you said, um, convenience and for brevity. And yes. Yeah, like, like, like Twitter, for example, I, I got on Twitter recently. Cause I'm like, okay, I have this platform. I better be on Twitter. And I'm thinking, I'm like, you, I, I play the game, right? I have these short little quips that are like, you know, sometimes they're witty, sometimes they're terrible. Sometimes they have like, they, they go, whatever. Uh, they go semi like for, for my purposes, viral, which is like, you know, a hundred people like it. Um, but I'm thinking, I'm like, Twitter has totally short circuited like the, the nuance and the context of anything of, of, of anything. And that can go for any issue. And it's like, man, we're really a microwave society. And I don't know if that's helping us understand reality any better because life is, con life is context. Life is nuance yeah. and it's not always black or white. Right. But our culture seems to have taken a, a, a page from the fundamentalist playbook and painted things in just stark black or white, either you're this or yeah. you're that. And I have to imagine that 
you know, it's just not good for my brain to be on the couch, right, reading through DMs and screenshotting them <laughs> while watching a TV show, while my one-year-old's, right. like, crying, like, and then, like, pausing that and checking this other social media account. I mean, I, I hate to confess this uh, to the whole world, but it's been so bad where I've been in bed for maybe 45 minutes just cycling Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, yeah. Instagram, email, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> maybe a game, Twitter, you know, like, I mean, for 40 45 yeah. minutes and i'm like what am i doing this is not oh my good gosh. have you watched the social dilemma yes i have i have I know. <laughs> but i mean yeah there's a real addiction process that's happening for sure like a couple of nights ago i never get on tiktok but i'm getting into roller skating oh, and cool. there are all these great like tiktok roller skate accounts and it like it sent me a notice. It was like, "Hey, look, you've been on TikTok for a really long time. Maybe you should go take a break and like get a glass of water or something, maybe a snack." And I was like, "Dang!" TikTok warned so, you? Yeah, I mean, I I've never really been on TikTok that much, but I appreciated that it did that. Yes, because it was like absolutely this experience where I felt like someone was watching me and I'd like done something wrong, you know? And so I was like, well, I guess I better log off. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's so hard to break that cycle. Absolutely. I mean, have you done a lot of like, I don't know, research or, or given a lot of thought to the role. And I, this is kind of a little off beaten path. But I, I would like to go here because you, this is like your expertise, the, the role of like big tech on the human brain. I mean, forget other people. How is big tech influencing our brain development? How is it? I mean, you know, social dilemma shows how like, especially uh, teenage girls at a, you know, suicide risk is like through the roof and they contribute a lot of that to social media and to the relational aspect. Have you seen that kind of stuff in your studies? Have you done any research into that at all? So I have a colleague who researches this extensively Ooh. and her name is Miley Wynn Steers. And so that I'll, I'll give that to you. Yeah. You can put it in I the would, show notes. Okay. Will, will she come on for an interview sometime? I would love to have her on. Oh yeah. That would be a really great idea. Yeah. Um, and she's done a lot of research on this comparison that happened specifically on Facebook and um, it's breaking down the comparisons from like a downward comparison to an upward comparison. So this is going to get a little researchy and statistical and technical. I'm ready. Um, but when we make these downward comparisons, so when I look at someone who like, um, maybe their vacation wasn't as cool as mine, right? Then I'm like, ah, oh, I feel pretty good, right? Yeah. Um, but what is everybody putting on social media? The highlight reel. So nine times out of 10, and that's not a statistical number. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, you know, peer reviewed. But more often than not, I should say, yeah. um, we're making these upward comparisons. So I'm looking at the person that had the cooler vacation than me. Or, you know, whatever the thing is. Totally. And that is like a complete, like, direct line to depression. Okay. Um, again, this is probably TMI for my followers, but whatever. So that was very much me when I was on the quest to get to 10K on my account. I'm like, all right, Tim, you know, you have like 2,000 followers and you have 4,000. I'm like, oh, if I get to 10K, that's like a monumental moment. So I hit 10K, then I'm like, oh, but 20K. I mean, 20K. Nice. And now I'm at like, I don't know, whatever, like 16, whatever it is. And that's fine. But it's like, I, I had to tell myself like, okay, Tim, you realize that you'll never be satisfied, right? Like if this is like right. your standard, when you hit 20, you'll want 30. And also, what are you really saying? Like you want a number to go up on a, on a platform that doesn't materially exist? Right. 
like, wow, that's a pretty strong, that's a pretty powerful hole in someone's brain to be like almost losing yeah. sleep or being depressed. Like, oh, I only gained, you know, a hundred followers today. That's not my normal average. I'm like, what is wrong with you, Tim? <laughs> what is happening? Uh, so again, yeah. you're human. I know, but yeah. I, I need your friend on to, to tell me, you know, yeah, Tim, this stuff sucks. And I can say, but I know, but I have a huge platform. I don't want to give it up. And that's like, and it's also doing a lot of good, right? Like I have these conversations and DMs and we, we, yeah. have, we, have, we have a private Facebook community and, and people are like meeting each other and that's great. So again, like there's, there's a plus side to all this. Yes. <laughs> and that's where for me, I think, and I was thinking about this just a minute ago too, when you were talking about how people are black and white and right yeah, and wrong, yeah. yes and no. One of the things that helped me so much in my deconstruction was stepping into non-duality. And so exactly with what you're talking about here, where, um, you know, my work exists online yeah. and right. there are a lot of features about the online world that are poor, right, a lot. Right. but there's a lot of great reasons to build online communities. Yeah. So many great reasons. And so we have to just find ourselves in that balance. And, you know, the same mm. thing with um, deconstruction with, talking about beliefs and what's objective and what's real and yeah. reading the Bible, but then taking in personal experience. I mean, in my opinion, I think finding that space of non-duality is so helpful because it allows you to step into that ability to, to release or to release certainty, right. Um, yeah. about so many different things, but I think it works mm. too with, um, your desire to want to grow. That's a good thing. But it also can be a thing that takes over and um, intoxicates you. Very intoxicating, right? Um, how do how can you rewire your brain to be non-dualistic? I mean, especially when, and I'm assuming, and tell me, you're the pro here, okay? But from what I've heard <laughs> on the on, on the interwebs, you know, they say that like when your brain is especially when you're younger, I think up until like 25, it's pretty moldable. It's kind of like cement, you know, it's, it's molding and shaping. And then like once you hit like a certain age, it gets firmer and it's harder to change habits and patterns. That's what I've heard. Okay. You can correct me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I say that because I do wonder like when you've been kind of wired and you've been taught that like, no, God is objective and his moral law is the only moral law and we can know that moral law and there is no black there's no gray it is black or right you are in or out you're in heaven or in hell it's this or that you know like all these different um dualities how how do you start to rewire your brain to to not think that way without having a panic attack every day Asking for a friend. Meditation. <laughs> Meditation. Oh, okay. I love that. I actually had done that. I had the Headspace app. I went through a big season ah. of anxiety and panic. Long story. But in the middle of yeah. that, I was like, I got to figure this out. I started going to therapy and also got the Headspace app. And honestly, at first I was like, this is dumb. I don't like it. But after a little while, maybe like a month or so, I was like, this is very calming and very peaceful. Yes. So yeah, like you, uh, you know, I have a tendency towards anxiety and meditation and focused breathing, like breathing for anxiety and stress mm. is the number one thing that has helped me with stress and anxiety. Mm. And there's a great book called How God Changes Your Brain by a neuroscientist. His name is Andrew Newberg. So you'll want to pick up this book. I think you'll really love it. Get in my notes out. And you said it's, it's How God Changes Your Brain? How God Changes Your Brain. And um, in their research, two guys, Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman, and um, they found that meditating for 12 minutes a day 
for eight weeks, that's it. You can restructure your brain. You can rewire your brain. And things that happen um, to your brain specifically is it um, increases activity in the anterior cingulate, which is the area of your brain where compassion is housed. And it suppresses activity in the amygdala, which is kind of like the really lizard-like brain um, that houses like big emotions, like fear and aggression. Fight or flight, is that in there? Absolutely. Mm. And it suppresses activity in that structure of the brain. Wow. In as little as eight weeks. Wow. So you're like, yeah, after a month, I felt calmer. So I think what people um, tend to think when they're tasked with meditating is that they have to sit in silence for 60 minutes a day. <laughs> right. And it takes like years right. for you to come to this place where you can accept things like non-dualism mm. and um, uncertainty. But yeah, in as little as 12 minutes a day and eight weeks, and that's even guided meditation was their specific, um, uh, type of meditation that they were using in their experiments. So you don't have to just sit in silence. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the Headspace app. That guy was great. They have always different packs for anything, you know, yeah. like aggression, uh, being more empathetic, anxiety. And I went through a couple, I think I went through quite a few of them and it was it, honestly, along with a lot of other things like, like, uh, getting back in the gym and stuff like that, it was very helpful. And it's weird because again, like my Christian sensibilities, right? Like, Oh, meditation. That's not like right. good. But then I think, well, the Bible says to meditate on the word day right. and night. You know, like there is, and also, can we also finally admit that, you know, the Bible comes from an Eastern culture, not a right. Western one. So, right. I mean, right. you know, like, I don't know. It's very interesting to me. So, so that, for, for, you know, in your view, that is one of the best ways to rewire your brain is, is, is a healthy dose of consistent meditation 12 minutes a day. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're struggling with things like stress and anxiety, which so many of us are. And especially if you're wanting to step into a place where you want to feel okay with the questions. Yeah. And you want to be able to sit with the questions and you want to be okay with not knowing the answers. I mean, for me, I'm an Enneagram five. I'm an academic. You're an investigator. I'm a huge huge nerd is what that means. (laughs) Forget investigator, nerd. Um, you know, I've got a PhD. And so for me, I need to know everything. Mm. Like when COVID hit, it was like really bad because (laughs) I was like, I need to know everything about this situation, (laughs) um, which was exhausting, but meditation for me as an Enneagram five and as someone prone to anxiety has been so helpful because it's allowed me to be like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about God. I don't know Mm. about that some days I don't know about why we're here. I don't know, you know, about, um, all the stuff and that's okay. And that's actually, frankly, a more enjoyable life giving place to be. Um, I love to sit here and geek out about research and, you know, talk about all of the facts and, um, and all of that for sure balance. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, but it makes, I think that's really, that's really good. It's really wise. One of the other points I was going to make, I said, I had two things. The schema was number one. Right. And the second part I was going to bring up, that's just kind of an interesting connection I made is that you mentioned how the human brain is really more wired for meaning. Um, and I would say maybe like order, you know, like the idea of like giving meaning to things. And then I was thinking about, I, I don't know if you know who John Walton is. He's a great, um, just old Testament scholar. The guys, he's a freaking legend. He's written like 40 books 
And he wrote a great book called The Lost World of Genesis, uh, Genesis 1. I, I interviewed him a, a little while ago. And, you know, his whole thing is that Genesis, the, the, the creation narrative is about a God who orders things. It's not about a material creation, how we think about it. And I was just making that connection of like, man, that like makes a lot of sense to think about how even these biblical authors who I think we can have this perception of like, oh, they were back then, so they weren't as intelligent or aware of things, and we are enlightened now, right? But the reality is like even they're telling this story of this presence, this spirit that wants to give order and meaning to things that might not look like they have order and meaning. And I just found that connection so interesting because even in ancient Eastern book, like the Bible is pointing a lot lot of is pointing towards that all over the text uh specifically of course in genesis and how like there really is in a lot of ways nothing new under the sun and almost and i'm i'm kind of speculating here but i almost kind of feel like maybe the enlightenment and like the modern way of thinking isn't how the human brain is designed like naturally so you're trying to put like a square and like a round hole in a lot of ways right i mean obviously it's good to discipline your brain and to work on on these practices and, and, and to know facts but our brains like aren't naturally wired to be like i can see things completely unbiasedly it's like no and you, really, you, <laughs> yeah. you weren't supposed to see it that way either you know yeah 100 percent. i mean that's the thing uh, i don't want to say that we're always working against our brains but in a lot of ways we are mm. um yeah and that made me think of another really interesting finding from that book how god changes your brain yeah and they found that people who see god as being um very like authoritarian and, um, vindictive, um, they're more likely to experience aggression and anger and things like this in their lives. Um, but if they see God as loving and compassionate, then they're more likely to mirror that type of God figure in their own lives. Um, so there's definitely, um, for sure implications for, just how you view God and the way that your brain responds to that and then thus creates who you are, you know, as an individual. Yeah, I, I'm, wow. I mean, that, again, it's it's one of those things that is, when you say it like that, it's very obvious. Because again, I, I think about in broad strokes, the evangelical right that I was a part of and how so many people are angry in that movement. Yeah. And they have a, right. a, a view of God of like, you know, he will just wipe out everyone. It's a new flood coming um, unless we repent, a.k.a. turn to their version of Christianity and fight for their issues that they think politically are the most important. Um, and God is vengeful and, 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 and wrathful. I mean, there's a whole fundamentalist movement that has a foundation of God, uh, of saying that at God's center is wrath and judgment, not love and mercy. And it's right. just so like... You know, again, it's it's a kind of the same thing where I said like with the election, where it's like, how can you read like the Sermon on the Mount and be like, yeah, this God wants to really screw over humanity, you know? And, and I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure how you were taught, yeah. but I was always taught like, listen, when you have kids, you know, Tim, you're gonna experience like you're gonna see what people mean when they say that that you know like like that that God loves and disciplines his children, and I'm like, okay, I have a one year old. And if anything, my version of my God in my head has become like a trillion times more empathetic <laughs> because I'm like, yeah. I would never want to damage my son right. or throw him into a pit of, of, of eternal punishment. Like what? Right. I would, I, you, I, what? That is, that is, that is insanity. So if, right. if that is true, right. If like, you know, if, if in theory, at least in the Christian thought, 
how God loves people is how you know parents love their children. Well, then the God I know is way more loving than I ever <laughs> imagined. Not vengeful. <laughs> right. There's two things though. So we have something called mirror neurons. Okay. And so um, if someone is behaving a certain way, typically your brain will start to mirror that and then mm. thus you know, respond that way or behave that way. And there's also like social learning theory and stuff like that. Um, so if you believe God to be this thing and you're meditating on God as this figure, of course, you're going to manifest those types of mm. emotions or beliefs in your life. And then the other piece of that is like, we're told that we're created in the image of God, right? Right. So if you believe God to ultimately be this one thing and you are created in the image of that, right. of course, you're going to manifest those features. Mm. And so, yeah, I think the practice for me is, and going back to that idea of, um, learning human nature through social psychology and recognizing that this is just who we are as yeah. human beings and that we can be aware of that and then work through it is then also seeing that in other people too, which is super hard because I have a tendency to be like, Oh, those people, you know, yeah. and again, yeah. and create another fundamentalist view of the us versus them mentality. Yeah. And, but when you can begin to like, if I think of people in my life who view God in that way, and then I see them manifesting those behaviors, it's like, oh, I just experienced this compassion for them Yes. of, of like, wow, um, of course they're behaving that way. Of course they believe that. Of course they're influenced by that crazy pastor guy saying mm -hmm. those things, you know, mm -hmm. like, of course they think that the election was rigged. Right. right. Um, and so I think it's just, allowing yourself to understand people as humans and recognize that um, we have these tendencies and it's stepping into that awareness to work against them. Right. Like you were saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, having a sense of compassion, not acceptance. Right. Right. There's a difference. Totally. And enabling no acceptance, no enabling. But having compassion yeah. for people who are, I don't know if you're familiar with spiral dynamics. I'm not probably familiar with it enough to talk about it too bit. much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, not, not that much, um, you know. But yeah, having compassion for people who are like, you know, well, further behind in a sense. Yeah. You know, I think about like the, the term I use a lot is you don't want to dehumanize people, right? Like if, right. if I, as a Jesus person, do believe that every human being is is reflecting God's image or made in God's image, then you wanna you wanna realize that every human being has worth. Now, when someone like Candace Owens does a whole video on why George Floyd essentially deserved what happened to him, you know, you have to it's a weird thing to like respond to that without right. trying to dehumanize Candace, but also calling her right. out for dehumanizing someone else. Like, hey, like yes. why are you taking the image of God that's been given to you and twisting that to now dehumanize someone else? Who has that same image that you do? Like that's bullshit, yes. right? And so right. it's like, and so when that happens, it's like, it's tough, right? I mean, it's really tough to fight the urge just to say I'm better than them, and they're horrible people, and they're fighting for all the wrong things. But then you think like, well, that logic keeps us in the circle of chaos that we're in now. I mean, that, yeah. that is the issue, right? Like if we're going to talk on like a political level, the right attacks the left, left attacks the right, you know, they have their conservative yeah. media, they have this. And then it's just like this spiral of, 
dehumanization. And I think what you said is so is so poignant where it's like we don't accept racism, right? We don't accept right. people who want to really hurt other people, but we also do our best to have compassion on them in hopes that one day they can be restored to a much healthier version of themselves that they were always created to be. And it's like, how do we do that? Like, how do we get them to even think maybe like self-reflectively when they're alone at night, right? And no one's around. How do we get them to think like, Hmm, maybe like that point that someone said was valid. I should think about that. Or like, like how do we get them to, to come to yeah. their own conclusions? Because we all know that yelling at people doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't right. work. For, I mean, our evangelical culture, right? Yell, we, we, we were taught, you just got to call the culture out and tell them to repent and give them the track. It doesn't work. Right. Like we know it doesn't oh, work. Man. So it's, it's, you have to be super hyper self-aware to realize that like just because you're yelling in a different way doesn't mean you're going to be more effective <laughs> right. <laughs> right one of the best teachers for me in this yeah. is Brene Brown I don't know if you're a fan of hers um but what she says often is speak truth to bullshit be civil I love that yeah and she talks about that a lot in a book called the gifts of imperfection mm. um and that was really helpful for me is like you know, because as a woman in the church, um, I'm angry about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and, Absolutely. and I was, I stood in my anger for a long time. And it's yeah. like, I think the real task is how do I, um, use my anger. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. And, um, so in that book, how God changes your brain, what's very interesting is the very last chapter is compassionate communication. Mm. And so you might enjoy that too, because they talk a lot about how to have um, compassionate communication and how to talk to people who don't see things the same way you do. And uh, it's so helpful, especially like, you know, right now it just seems uh, like things are so polarized and yeah. online and all of the things that um, it's important for us to find ways to speak truth to bullshit yeah. and be civil. It is hard, especially online, right? Where there's no human element. I have found though, yeah. um, I actually interviewed someone, Samuel Duth, who is a big pastor, anti-masker guy. In fact, Candace Owens is speaking at his church this Sunday. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm like, dude, come on the show and like, let's talk. I have a lot of questions. And you know, I have found that like, once you have a face-to-face -face conversation, yeah, I'm definitely going to like push him and challenge him. But you don't really want to dehumanize him anyway. It's kind of unnatural to be like, well, you just suck. You know, like, that, it doesn't really <laughs> happen that way. And we actually had a really... In my, my, from my perspective, a really good conversation. I, I did call him out on some stuff, like whatever it was. But yeah, the, the, the internet thing has really stripped the humanness out of yeah. words. <laughs> and people say, yeah. people say ugly stuff. Do you have a few more minutes? I know we're a little over the hour. Do you have some time? Yeah, for sure. I would, I would like to maybe, I mean, maybe we can start landing this plane. This one might, might skyrocket. I don't know. But I mean, did you like think about the, I'm not trying to ask this, but I'll put it bluntly. Like, did you think about like, like the connection and how someone like Donald Trump was able to really influence so many, especially Christian evangelicals, to really vote against even their own moral code? Like the psychology behind that. Do you have any insight on that? Because I I would be just open ears to that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of social psychology at play there, um, and. You know, I think it's a lot of the things that we've talked about. Um, I'm probably going to have an answer for this that might be a little bit messy. Um, That's okay. And unscripted. 
Um, because I've definitely talked about this a lot, like in conversation, but maybe not like officially. Um, (laughs) um, but yeah, so some of the things that we've talked about, right. Where, um, one thing I haven't mentioned that I could add to, and not just repeat myself is that, uh, people typically also have a need to be perceived as consistent, Mm. And, um, this is used a lot in like marketing tactics. So there's a lot of overlap with social psychology and like marketing, which is really interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, when I took my first social psychology class in graduate school, my brother was a marketing major and I called him and I was like, bro, like this whole book is like marketing. And we geeked out about that. That's awesome. Um, But yeah, one of the things that we know about humans is that they want to be perceived as consistent. Mm. And so I'm curious, again, these are like Katie's lay theories about um, what was going on uh, during that time is that, um, you know, people have an identity that they're Republican. They have an identity that they're conservative, right? This is an example we could use it on the other side, right? That people have an identity as being a Democrat or being liberal or whatever. And we want to be perceived as being consistent in that. And I think that really rings true when we're talking about deconstruction as well, where it's so hard for us to step away from things that we have done and believed and said and all of the things all of our lives. Um, So my question, my hypothesis is, um, was it difficult for people to step away from that identity, right? From um, that label of being Republican, of being conservative, when they had the candidate who wasn't aligning with the values specifically, but was under the label of the identity that they upheld, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about identity today. And I think you see this a lot in church too, where, um, We've since left the church where my husband pastored, and I speak to a lot of people who are still there, and they're unhappy. Um, they're, they don't agree with a lot of the things that are going on, but they're choosing to continue to go to church there. Mm. And I think that it really speaks to anecdotally the people that I know that it's their identity that they are a member of this church. Yep this specific church, like not even just the denomination, like this church, it's their identity. And so to step away from that, um, because they're experiencing that cognitive dissonance, right? And there's a lot of ways that we can deal with cognitive dissonance. And a lot of times, one of those ways is by just ignoring, again, the thing that's um, least convenient. Yeah. And um, so my hypothesis, my question is, were people unable to give up that identity um, to step away from something that felt incongruent or that created that dissonance. And then also they didn't want to admit, Mm -hmm. right. That that thing um, felt incongruent. Same thing with, you see this in church. They don't want to admit that they're unhappy. They don't want to admit that they disagree um, because there's that uh, pressure of conformity as well. Right. Well, what are people going to think if I vote, blah, blah, blah. What are people going to think if I leave the church? Right. And we are so driven by what people think. In fact, um, Mm. I don't know if you've heard of 
Kohlberg, but he has a theory of moral development. So his last name is K-O-H-L-B-E-R-G. So that might be someone that you want to look up to. But he talks about how we develop morality. And um, his theory was all built on this idea that most people center their morality just around what other people think or what other people are going to think of them if they behave a certain way. Interesting. So yeah, I'm not going to do this thing because what are people going to think of me instead of I'm not going to do this thing because it's not right. Um, And so his whole research Hmm. untapped that, or I guess his um, expectation was that 10 to 15% of people actually reach this level where they create their own unique morality that's like individualized. Hmm. Most people, so the other 90 to 85% of people um, are living from the space of what are people going to think of me if I do X, Y, or Z? Mm. And that determines my morality. So I think you could use that in the concepts of um, church and, and politics. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost wondering, well, really quick, it, it reminds me that, that that morality theory of very much like an honor-shame society and like a more yeah. Eastern culture of like, shame is actually not seen as a negative thing. It's actually used to kind of show per, people where, where the boundaries are. Like if the group disproves of whatever you're doing, that's right. the boundary. You've just hit it, right? Um, and it's interesting because I, I was wondering, along with your, with your hypothesis, what I'm wondering is, and this is kind of, this kind of is similar to my theory, which is, for a long time, evangelicals have been have been wearing the the or have been seeing the world through the lens of Republican conservative first, and then yeah. the Bible, right? So, like, in if there's like I'm not sure if there's like multiple identity layers that can happen, but if there was, I imagine like we people would would say. Right, like pastors and, and lay people would say, "Oh, my foundation is the Word of God. My foundation is the Bible." But what they really are showing is that their foundation is conservative, uh, Republican, um, you know, politics, and then the Bible. So they, they see they see the Bible through that. And so when when something like Trump comes along, who's a Republican, they have to square their foundational identity first and then reinterpret the Bible through that identity. Right. And so that's kind yeah. of my guess is like, I, I think that, you know, I tell a lot, I, I talk to pastors every now and then they'll, they'll ask me to, to, you know, just talk and share my perspective on deconstruction. And what I tell them that kind of wakes them up, it's like cold water to the face. Is I say, listen, you might think that you're discipling your congregation, but the reality is Charlie Kirk's discipling your congregation. Sean Hannity is discipling it. Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson, like that's, right. that's who's discipling your people. You might think you are, but you're not. Fox News is discipling right. your people. And I think that is kind of what we saw with Trump was like that was the fruit of what happens when an entire white evangelical movement that's predominantly conservative wears that lens first and then sees the Bible and the Christian perspective through that. You get the very easy justification. I mean, it was Jerry Falwell who said, you know, we need a commander-in-chief, not a pastor-in-chief, when the leaked Access Hollywood tapes came out of Trump saying those despicable things about women, right? It was an easy pivot because what's his lens? It's Republican conservatism. Then it's the Bible. So... I have someone for you to research if you haven't already heard of him. And his name is Stanley Milgram. Have you heard of the Milgram shocking studies? (laughs) Oh, I love it. The Milgram shocking studies? The Milgram shocking studies. You're going to love this. So I'll try to break it down um, really succinctly and really quickly. Um, Okay. So 
in the 60s, there were a lot of questions in psychology in the field around like how the Holocaust could happen. Mm. Like how could all of these people do this terrible thing? Because this one guy was saying the stuff and like nobody really believed him, but they just still did all the terrible things. Right. Right. So Stanley Milgram um, started these shocking studies and he brought people into his lab and he had this like elaborate experiment set up and he had this like fake shocking machine and he would hook people up to it and it was all a ruse like it was actors all the things right but um, there would be these people that were coming in as participants who were told to shock the person um, if they got a question wrong so they were um the cover was that they were studying the effect of punishment on learning okay okay and 65 percent of people shocked to like a potentially fatal level um just because this guy was standing over them in a lab coat in the seeming position of authority saying like you must continue with the experiment like that's the thing they would say. There's um, actually a documentary about it on Amazon Prime called The Experimenter, and Jim Gaffigan is in it. By the I way, I love Jim Gaffigan. I do too. He's oh so man, funny. Jim Gaffigan too. Over the last year, has been really interesting to watch um, politically. I haven't followed him but, recently, so I'll, I'll add that that was uh, my list. Jim yeah, you'll have to. I will. Um, yeah, so that was kind of the famous thing that they would continue to say when people would experience anxiety about like oh my gosh, I continue shocking this person. Like, so they were playing a tape in the other room of people screaming and then like going silent after a period of time. Yeah. Like the ethics on this thing are all bad, but it was the sixties. So there was no like checks and balances for what was okay for, you know, human studies. Um, Yeah. And so people would experience this anxiety and the experimenter would just say, you must continue on with the experiment. And so they would keep like pressing the button and increasing the voltage for the shocks, 65% of people. Um, and he did all of these different <sighs> studies and variations later on in the 70s. And there's another guy named Philip Zimbardo who did a study, um, the Stanford prison experiments. Oh, there's okay. a, yeah. So there's another um, documentary on him as well. Yeah. Um, but that's all around this idea that we've been talking about, like weaving back in and out of in this conversation is obedience. Yeah. And um, this idea that when we watch CNN or Fox News or whatever it is that we're watching, we see these people um, dress really nicely. That's another thing. And um, they're the people in authority and they've got the facts and if you watch that long enough and you buy into that long enough, like you will believe it. Yeah. And um, huh. it's human nature, mm. right? Um, so yeah, check out Stanley Milgram and the shocking studies and a lot of what's going on in society and in politics will become clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's- wow. I mean, I feel like honestly we can keep going, but for sake of time, yeah. I, I like keeping my interviews within an hour. We're already over that, but I mean, we obviously have to have you back on, no doubt about it. Um, you know, so many other like avenues to discuss and rabbit holes to go down and to geek out over. Um, yeah, I mean, this is really a really helpful conversation in a lot of different ways. Some unexpected and some just great clarification on just like terminology because you know i think like i think one thing that that like academics and people like yourself can really offer is you 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 can put really good language to things that we're trying to put language to you know like i'm like wrestling through this like how do i explain this thought you're like oh yeah it's called this oh yes that's so helpful (laughs) you know so i mean it's so important to have people who have done 
the the type five, you know, investigator, uh, you know, work because this stuff is big and deep, you know, like it's really complex and nuanced and um, it's, it's needed. So thanks for coming on and making the time and breaking some of this stuff down. I mean, we definitely will have to do it again for sure. Um, so yeah, where can people find you? Like, are you on social media? I mean, you know, do you have any books written? Like plug it all away. Yeah. So I'm on all the socials at Dr. Katie Blake. So it's Dr. Dr. Katie Blake. Um, except TikTok. You're probably only going to see me following roller skates. Roller, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, drkatieblake.com. And I currently have a community um, that I'm hosting online okay. for women who are deconstructing. It's $8 a month. Perfect. It's called The Collective. And we meet once a month on Zoom and we talk about some of these kind of heady topics. In fact, next month we're talking about the social psychology of church. Wow. <laughs> and so we do that on Zoom. And then um, once a month we have a guest speaker. Um, cool. who comes and talks about different concepts related to deconstruction or books that we're reading. So we read a book together every month and, um, I love playlists. So I make a playlist for everyone every I month and it's it. just, it's yeah, it's hosted on mighty network. So it's not on Facebook. Like we've been talking about some of the reasons Facebook is not ideal. So it's on this really great platform where people can just connect and make friends and talk about stuff that they wouldn't be able to talk about in real life. So, um, yeah, you can find that on my website and, um, we'd love for you to join us. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on Katie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was so fun. You can't always see bad weather coming, so it's essential that you're able to see through it when you drive. Michelin wiper blades with advanced technology hug your windshield like a Michelin tire hugs the road channeling away water, snow, and ice so you can see clearly, drive confidently, and breathe easy. Michelin Wiper Performance, clearer than ever. Upgrade to Michelin Premium Wipers today at Walmart, Amazon, and other fine retailers.